the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. We are joined every week by senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, the the author of The Case for Trump. Follow him right now on Twitter, V.D. Hansen. Professor Victor Davis Hansen, welcome back to America First. Thank you for having me. Uh, You have written a a piece at American Greatness, the title, A Time of Chaos Upon Chaos Atop Chaos. Will this chaos that you describe in your piece that we are posting right now on Twitter and Facebook, do you expect it to increase in the days ahead as we approach the Electoral College uh, and also then the vote in the Joint House of Senate for who should be the next president? Yeah, and even more so when we get to Georgia on January 5th. So it's going to be one of the most bizarre periods in in my lifetime. We never, and I say that because I think there, as I said in the piece, there was uh, violations of state legislation, and that affected the voting. But my, I think the tone or the temper of the debate. It was governed by time, and suddenly when I heard these, and we all heard these claims that there wasn't just a close vote that may have been altered or massaged by violations of state voting laws, but there may have been a 70% mandate uh, percentage vote taken or 400 votes in the Electoral College or millions of votes that were siphoned away from Trump through computer analytics or something. Everybody was blown away, and the left, of course, took out the week. This happened about, you know, eight days ago. So we were all expecting this huge trove of data in a way that would be different than the, than the more slower processes in the courts that the president was seeking. But I, I haven't seen it yet. And so I'm I'm disappointed. I want it to appear, but I don't I don't see it yet in a way that would be conducive for the president. So does that mean that you have don't have uh, high hopes for Rudy Giuliani and the team that in the time allotted they can demonstrate enough infractions, enough uh, fraudulent activity to actually have a, uh, a significant dent on uh, Biden's chances? Yeah, I think I, I should start with a premise that I think the left is more than capable of it than members of the left and they would want it to happen. And there is an ability within these untried computer systems. We know what Georgia had problems way back in June and July. People warned them to take one example. And then when we collate that to the COVID-induced lockdown panic, uh, the mail-in and early voting, all of that was a perfect storm. So the landscape is there. And yet I would have wished that we had, just to take an example of what I'm getting at, Seb, I wish we had a forensic expert get on first and say, look, this, this, I can replicate this on any, any computer. Here's a computer right in front of you. Let me show you how you do it and, and then do it. Or I wish 
that somebody said, I am a whistleblower, and I did this this night, and I'm ashamed of what I've done. But we haven't had that evidence before the statement. And so anytime in my own life that I've had grievances, I always try to get the state the, the facts first, and then I summar, summarize them. Or I don't even summarize them. I let them the other side deal with it. But what happened is that when we made these grandiose uh, claims, then immediately, within 24 hours, we needed the evidence. Otherwise, the left was going to manipulate that and impinge and weaken the other legitimate complaints about real inconsistencies in the states. And that's what's happened. And all of this is in a landscape where uh, we've got neo-socialism hanging in the balance for all of us in Georgia. If they win those two seats and the polls, to the degree they can be believed, they're pretty close. And we know what's going to happen if they win. They're going to pack the court. They're going to get rid of the filibuster. And once they get the Supreme Court, then there isn't going to be a constitution. So this is all, and this is all further, that's the title of my piece today, juxtaposes that there's a backlash against all of this, as we saw in the House races. Fox said that it, we were, we were going to lose five seats. We picked up at least 12. And the Senate did not get wiped out by 10 seats. And Donald Trump did not lose by 12 points or 17 points in Wisconsin or 380 uh, electoral votes like my colleagues at the Hoover at YouGov said would happen. So there's some really good news. And I just think it's getting overwhelmed right now. But your, your subtitle in your piece, you, you actually do ask the question, what about the GOP? And, and this is the, one of the most peculiar aspects of it all. You, you, you list quite rightly the, the incredible um, results that go against the narrative that has been peddled for months and months and months. Instead of this tidal wave of, of a Democrat victory, we have no state houses flipped to the Democrats. We have the Senate mm-hmm. looks to be held by the GOP. We have uh, uh, Nancy's edge in the House down to six, maybe just five seats. And then we have this expectation uh, that uh, the, the president didn't win. Well, we'll put that to one side for a moment. But but given those incredible results, Professor Hansen, shouldn't we be seeing an incredibly muscular GOP respond? Why, why is it down to a couple of, what shall I call them, MAGA lawyers to be the front of this, when in, given these results, this is a, a, a repudiation of the, not just the Democrats, it's a repudiation of, of the rhino behavior of the last 30 years, is it not? I think they were on board when there were these lawsuits. And, and to be candid, all of us were culpable because we now, in retrospect, see I, you and I talked about it in one show, but the culpability of John Roberts is really paramount because this started in May and June and July when in these key states, members of the bureaucracy, the administrative state, and local and state judges began to chip away at restrictions and guardrails for early voting and mail voting and for polling. And everybody just said, you know, that's going to happen. And that's how it started. And then when it became a political matter after the election, because the Supreme Court is not just illegal. So we had to show that the race was so close that these inconsistencies, and we had a very slow start, and then I thought we made some progress. And we were starting to show that you have, if you're going to recount in Georgia, you have to have signatures. If you're going to 
uh, have one glitch in Michigan, maybe you have to show how that can happen. But then all of a sudden, the whole tempo changed because then it was no longer this was a close election, but this was a landslide. And it was the biggest scandal in American history. It would be. Biggest scandal, no, no doubt about it. And it's, it's seven, it was 400 electoral colleagues. I'm quoting directly from Linwood, for example. And then suddenly everybody's shocked. And that took center stage. And there was, I, I've gone on Lou Dobbs, I've gone on other radio shows, I've followed Sidney Powell, I've waited for that evidence, that magnitude. And I had a lot of interviews before, and I had read the data very carefully on the election. And I felt that Donald Trump would carry the House, and he did. I felt he would carry the Senate, but I was very worried. Uh, and I said to a number of Congress, I don't think it's going to be a landslide. I think he's going to win the popular vote, but it's going to be very close. And I'm worried because of voting irregularities. I said that on record, and I wrote that because there was uh, there was a decline in some of the rubrics, and most of them were the white male with a bachelor's degree, and to a lesser extent women, but not as much as the left said. And I was thinking to myself, I've been culpable because I wrote off the never-Trumpers as irrelevant and impotent because they had no effect on the Republicans. But I can see in, in retrospect that all of that money in the Lincoln Project and all of that media, it probably only affected 50 or 60,000 suburbanites that are independent or conservative. But that constant Trump's tweets, Trump's tweets, I think in key states where if you change 40,000 votes, Trump, even the left can't say he would not be president. That had an effect. There has to be some answer. Professor, we've heard now for several weeks when it comes to demographics, the, the president had a remarkable result. If you look at the fact that 10 million more voted for him than four years ago, if you look at the uh, rates for Hispanics, for black, especially male voters, incredible turnouts more than since the 1960s. Why, why are we seeing this uh, certain part of the white male population uh, the president lost support there. Do you have any theories as to, because we were told about the suburban wife, housewives, that's the problem, but in fact it wasn't. Any ideas as to why? I, I think they have a, a level of comfort and security, especially during the lockdown, the Zoom, the, the Zoom nails, what I'm doing most of the day. And yeah. you, you don't feel, even though I'm out on this farm, I'm not in danger like the people I see on a tractor or the people who are shut down or the independent trucker who can't go into a particular state. And so when you look at that in particular and then the general issues, do they really care about open borders? Well, they have nannies maybe or their wages are not going to be driven down by uh, illegal aliens. Do they really care about the China for them? Their 401k, it's not an issue, but if they didn't, they, their factory wasn't closed down because of outsourcing and offshoring. Their kids are not 19 and on their way to Afghanistan. So, in their way of thinking, the Trump MAGA nationalist populist agenda is not is not affecting them. And so they, they look at other things. They, they like his tax plan. They're going to be shocked when they see what they voted for with Joe Biden's tax plan if Joe Biden wins the Senate. But they have the luxury to say, you know, I don't like his tweets. So I went to a teacher's meeting the other day and they made fun of all the people who voted for Trump. Or, gosh, did you see what he said? He said, little Marco. Or he said, Jeff Sessions uh, was a coward. Whatever that is, that, that explicitness on part of it. 
they have the luxury to be bothered by it. We're not talking about very many people at all. We're just talking a few tens or twenty or hundred thousand, who knows. But in this particular election, in these particular states, in these particular margins, I think the demographics and the exit polls were right that they, they did alter it. And the sad thing about this is that'll be misinterpreted by these never Trump characters that, you know, the Romney McCain uh, profile is dominant. It's not. Donald Trump is in a great position right now because there is no alternative to him. Well, this is, this is my question. What is the future of the yeah. GOP? Is it truly now forever the, a, a Trumpian GOP, Professor? Yeah, I think it is. I think what's going to happen, he's going to go down there to Georgia when this is all cleared up one way or the other. Only he can get out the base. Only he can save those two senators. Everybody else is going to be... Nobody's going to distance himself from that agenda. He's going to be either a kingmaker, and every person will kiss his ring that wants to run in 2024, or he's going to play Andrew Jackson. And he's going to be an agreed party, and he's going to say, I conceded, but I got a corrupt bargain. And I'm going back, and, you're, and you'll see me first in 2022, and then he'll come back. He's still of an age that he can do that. That's exactly what Jackson did. It's his party. And we saw that in the House races. Every single person ran with Trump, and we saw it with the Senate races. And we're seeing it with the, the people who are going down to Georgia as potential 2024 Republican nominees. They're not, they're not attacking. That's why I think it's really important that people like Sidney Powell and Giuliani understand that it's not just this election, a, a big biggest scandal in history. And nobody wants more than I to see Donald Trump reelected right now. But if that can't happen... I don't want his brand. I think there's millions of people who depend on it. If he's not around, that Republican Party will go back to where it was. We'll have open borders. We'll have detente with China. We're going to have it anyway for two years with Joe Biden, but we won't have any opposition to it. So but it seems as if the, the, the establishment GOP has, has no inkling that that is the reality, that, that Donald Trump has become the kingmaker. Do you, do you see any signs of them finally coming to that realization? Well, I think we will, because when you I've been looking at the, the campaign rhetoric in these very closely contested states in the House. And I'm in a district that's plus 11 Democrats. And uh, David Darvale won. He got back his seat and he didn't run against Donald Trump. Believe me, he ran with Donald Trump in a plus 11 Democratic district. And he won. And all of them did. Not one, there was not one Trump MAGA apostate that won in the House. And all those senators, even Susan Collins got quiet about Donald Trump. And I thought, you know what? She's going to lose if she turns on Trump. And when they started attacking her, she went back toward Trump. And that's just the way it is. They understand that. And I think he's going to get even stronger. It depends on a lot in Georgia. Because can you imagine going, either one of those candidates down there saying that they want to have detente with China <laughs> or they really don't want to have open borders? They're dead. And they may be dead anyway because of the money and the high tech and the Democratic shenanigans. But the only chance they have is for Donald Trump to go down there and rally the base and tell the country we've got it. And, and they know it. And the future I, of the never-Trump clique in D.C., Professor? I think, you know what, I think they have no idea that 
they go from snark to whine in a second, and they think that they're relevant now. But they're as, when they're relevant, they're they think they're relevant. They're even as off-putting as when they when they whine that they're irrelevant. They don't have they didn't really have much of a role. They, maybe these, these as we talked about these white male people listen to the where I write or and National Review, or maybe they listen to, I don't think they listen to Bill Crystal or David Frum and George Will, but even if they did, that's not a sustainable movement. There's nobody that I know of, and I live sort of in a working class district who's saying, we've got to get back to Romney principle. It's just not. From I think you know that. Nobody, nobody wants to go back to the idea that we just sell out the industrial center or we we open the border or we're, we put troops all over the Middle East or we stop fracking or we, you know, we, we don't want to get, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings about abortion and stuff like that. I don't think that, I just don't think there's a constituency. I would tell you if I did. No, we know you would. We know you would. And that's why you are such a popular regular guest here in America First, from snark to wine, a perfect description of the never Trump movement, which I think has condemned itself to irrelevance in the very near future. We've been talking, as we do every week, to Victor Davis Hanson, professor at the Hoover Institution, senior fellow, classics and military history. Amongst his many, many books you should acquire, you must get The Case for Trump and follow him at V.D. Hanson. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. Donald Trump's legacy will be framed by his actions between now and the inauguration. He won in 2016 against all odds and went on to four years of knockdown battles with the political media and legal establishment. He awakened the American people to the threat of the Chinese Communist Party, brought new peace and alliances in the Middle East, isolated the rogue regime in Iran, and rebuilt the U.S. military. He saw through three, count them three, Supreme Court justices and more than 220 judges total. He claimed the first realignment since Ronald Reagan in 1980, all in the face of the most partisan impeachment in U.S. history. His actions over the next 60 days, though, can frame his legacy and secure that place in U.S. history. They ought to be focused on Operation Warp Speed, delivering vaccines and therapeutics, while the nation and the world witnesses a smooth transition of power. It will be a glorious pivot in the story. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For those considering careers in politics and policy.